listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. So we are picking up where we left off in the Sermon on the Mount. We're in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. We've just been working through this sermon, as most of you know. And and, uh, as it happens, here on uh, the eve of Valentine's Day, our topic is divorce and remarriage. Um, That's what we're dealing with. That's that's what Jesus is giving us in this next two verses. So we're going to roll with it. We're going to make what we can out of this. I want to I want to just say a couple things before we get into this uh, this this particular sermon, and that is that um, first of all I'm, I'm going to go out of my way. I know we have a lot of people in our church, just like exists in any church. I know we have a lot of people who have gone through at some point in their lives, in the sequence of their lives, they've experienced divorce and even even remarriage. And I just want you to know on the front end, I'm going to go out of my way uh, to make sure you don't feel condemned or. Uh, unnecessarily uncomfortable or anything like that. Uh, That's not what's going to happen tonight or this weekend. And then also, this sermon is not going to be um, a comprehensive exposition of the biblical grounds for divorce. That's That's a much larger conversation that's probably best had in smaller contexts. What we are going to do this weekend is we're going to try to get at the root of what Jesus is saying here, which is something I believe is going to apply to everyone. Whether you're divorced, remarried, or just married or single, uh, you're going to have something during this message that you can grab hold of. So let's look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. This is going to be our text uh, this weekend. Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. Jesus says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Well, there you have it. And all the divorced and remarried people in the room just got a little bit nervous, but... You don't need to be nervous. Just trust me for a few moments. Uh, This is a controversial text. It's been that way for 2,000 years. And there have been throughout Christian history all kinds of various interpretations of this passage. I don't have the time to discuss all of them. But what I do want to do on the front end of this sermon is I want to talk about probably what I think is the most common interpretation of this passage, the traditional interpretation of this passage, and I want to show you why I think it's, it's wrong, and uh, because I think it's something perhaps most of us here have come in contact with. At some point in your life, you've heard this particular take on this passage, whether on the airwaves or in reading material or elsewhere, and it's this. The, here's the most common view of this particular teaching. It's been, it's been taught that The reason why Jesus says if you divorce a woman, you cause her to commit adultery, and whoever marries her commits adultery, it's been said that the reason why Jesus says that is because you're actually still married in God's eyes. Even if you got a divorce, God doesn't acknowledge the divorce, 
you're still husband and wife, you're still married, uh, because, you know, after all, the Bible says what God has put together, let no man put asunder. So you're still married in God's eyes, um, unless a technicality has been met, and that is on the instance of infidelity or adultery. If that's the case, then, okay, that's fine. There's a loophole. But if that hasn't been met, if there hasn't been infidelity, then no matter what, you're still husband and wife in God's eyes. You're still married. And that's been the most common view of this passage. Now, if you think about it, just for a little bit, (laughs) that can create some awkward situations. I mean, first of all, is it really the case that you want to go to every divorced and remarried couple that you can find and tell them, well, you know what, actually, uh, in God's eyes, you're still bound to your original spouse. And so here you are married to someone else, but God doesn't acknowledge that. You need to get out of this, and you need to go back and be with your, your first spouse because you're still married in God's eyes. I don't know of any church that actually will go so far as to say that. And yet that would be consistent with this particular interpretation. But it just brings up these questions. What if there are kids involved? What if the, what if the original spouse was abusive? Or just a terrible, all-around rotten person. It just would seem kind of unloving to just barge into somebody's life and just completely blow up everything that happened after the fact. It also creates some bizarre dilemmas. I've known people in my life, for example, who have been divorced, and they don't think that they can get remarried until their ex-spouse has sexual relations with someone else. And so here you have a, a situation where you have two individuals who were married. They're no longer married. They're now, they've moved on with their lives. They're not trying to work it out. That's in the past. They're moving forward apart from one another. That's over with. And yet you have these two people who are both hoping that the other one will fall first. Because in this little game, whoever falls first is the loser. And they're the adulterer. And I'm the one who's now set free to move on. Okay? Because a technicality, a legality has been met. Listen, whenever you find yourself coming to the conclusion that legality is more important than reality, that's a sign that you're misinterpreting Jesus' words to me. Because the God who is revealed in Jesus Christ is concerned about reality first and foremost. And, And according, if this interpretation is correct, if the traditional interpretation is correct, it just doesn't seem to fit with the pattern of what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount so far. Those of you that have been with us these last few weeks, what we've seen is this pattern where Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say to you this. So we've seen, for example, where he says, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Don't engage in this external behavior. But Jesus says, I want to focus on the reality of what's in your heart. And I want to talk to you about loving your brother and sister and not harboring anger and bitterness and lust in your heart. You're so focused on the outward legality of this matter. I want to talk to you about the reality of loving from your heart. That's what Jesus has been doing so far in the Sermon on the Mount. But if this traditional interpretation of this passage is correct, it's almost like Jesus is doing the exact opposite. That he doesn't care about the reality of the situation. All that truly matters is that you have an out. That there's this technicality. Oh, so the other person had sex. Even though the other person may have been thinking about it ten times as much. Something seems off, right? 
Now, to really understand what's going on in this passage, I want us to zoom in. Let's go back to verse 31. I want us to take a closer look at this. And and let's start with verse 31, then we're going to look at verse 32 in a moment. But look at what he says in verse 31. He says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. I think this right here is going to be helpful. If we can talk about what is that, where did it come from? So let's look at another passage that goes all the way back to Deuteronomy, where this whole thing comes about. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 24 and find out a little bit about this certificate of divorce. Chapter 24, Deuteronomy verses 1 through 4. Suppose a man enters into marriage with a woman, but she does not please him because he finds something objectionable about her. And so he writes her a certificate of divorce puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. She then leaves his house and goes off to become another man's wife. Then suppose the second man dislikes her, writes her a bill of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of the house. Or the second man who married her dies. Watch this. Her first husband, who sent her away, is not permitted to take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that would be abhorrent to the Lord, and you shall not bring guilt on the land that the Lord your God is giving you as a possession. Okay, all right, let's let's, uh, drill down on this for a few moments. Here's the thing. In God's idea, in God's ideal scenario, sex was to be reserved for one person with whom you are committed for your entire life. When you say I do in a marriage, you are committing your entire being, your entire self to that person. And sex was to be sort of like your body's way of saying I do. It was, you're saying yes with your entire being. Sex is is the body's way of, of saying yes to that covenant. That's why we call it consummating the marriage. So this was always the design, God's design for sex. The ideal was that sex would would exist within a marital context for life. So that's God's ideal. That's God's vision. But God is also a realist. Yes, he's got his ideals, but he also deals with the real world. And in the real world, divorce happens. And it's been happening since the beginning of time. And it was happening with the ancient Israelites. And God saw that divorce was happening. And so rather than be a God who says, I'm not going to deal with this because this doesn't meet my ideal, so I'm done with all of these people. Instead, God says, now, in light of the situation, what's the loving way forward? And I love what this says to us about God. Listen to me. When when we break from God's ideal, and, and all of us have in our lives, when we break from God's ideal, it is not the case that God just washes his hands of us and says, I'm done with you, you disgusting little varmint. He doesn't throw a holiness temper tantrum. No, God says, okay, it's happened. You messed up. You blew it. Just like the entire rest of the human race. So in light of the situation now, what's the most loving way forward? I was just talking about this with somebody yesterday about something totally different. And I was talking about how oftentimes when we break from God's ideal, oftentimes when, we, when we're ready to turn, when we're ready to repent and move forward, the options in front of us, none of them are ideal. But, it's, but, but God, it doesn't keep God from dealing with reality. 
God just simply says, okay, now that we're in this situation, let's move forward in the most loving, most holistic way possible. That's what this whole certificate of divorce was about that Moses gave to the Israelites. That's what the whole thing was about. It's God saying, in light of the fact that divorce has been happening, now how do we bring some things to this that are going to maybe offer some protection to the women in this relationship? And this certificate of divorce gave protection to the women in two ways. Number one, it gave the woman something that she could have in her hand that she could take with her to prove that she's no longer bound to her first husband so that she's eligible to be remarried. And that was so essential in the ancient world. It's hard for us to enter into this, but the ancient world was extremely patriarchal, very male-dominated, and apart from being married to a man, a woman had, had no social safety nets to protect her. And, and hardly any means to sustain herself. Remarriage would be her only, let's say, legitimate option. And if she could not get remarried, her only recourse generally would to be just to embrace the life of a beggar or to become a slave or to embrace prostitution. And so it was so important that she had that opportunity. If her husband dumped her on the side of the road, that she has an opportunity to be remarried. And this certificate of divorce was very essential in that process. The second reason why this thing was important, it was almost like God saying, you know what, we're going to slow this process down a little bit. Instead of the man just being able to divorce his wife willy-nilly, no, we're going to slow it down. He's going, to, he's going to be forced to go through this process. And notice the stipulation. We just saw it. I pointed it out a moment ago in Deuteronomy. According to this certificate of divorce procedure, she's allowed to remarry anyone else but the original husband. He cannot just take her back. See, this was one of the things that was going rampant at the time, is these husbands would just, in a moment, in a fit of rage, they would, he would just kick his wife out on the street, I'm done with you, leave. And then, in a more sober moment, you know, he might change his mind and bring her back. He was treating her like a piece of property. And, and so God's like, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to slow this thing down. And actually, she's allowed to remarry anybody else but you. So it gave a measure of protection, you understand, to, to the wife. That, that she wasn't going to be just thoughtlessly cast out on the street like a piece of garbage. And by the way, it just seems to me that that would be enough right there um, to disprove this idea that you're still married in God's eyes. If that were the case, then it would seem that the only person God would want her to be remarried to is the original husband. But in this case, that's the only one that God says, I forbid you to take her back. Now, the root of what Jesus is saying here is just simply this. And, and he applies it to men because because that was the culture. I think he would apply it to everyone in today's culture. But here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you're not going to treat people as property. You're not going to treat people as objects and things. Learn to treat your spouse with honor and grace as a fellow heir of the grace of life, as Peter says. So that's the whole divorce, the uh, certificate of divorce issue. Let's look at verse 32 now. Everybody with me so far? All right, we're going somewhere. Just stick with me. Verse 32. Now watch this. Here's, here's a fun little part to this passage that I just couldn't wait to get to. He says, But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of unchastity or infidelity, now notice this odd comment, 
causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, what in the world is this about? Anybody ever struggle with this passage? Okay. What is Jesus doing here? What's going on? What's going on here are some very interesting ethical observations by Jesus. And I think what, the way I can help you best with this is to give it to you in an illustration that we can connect it to. And this is not my illustration. This comes from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of the greatest theologians of the last hundred years, was martyred by the Nazis. Great man. But here's, what Dietrich, here's how Dietrich Bonhoeffer helps us with this. And he gives us an illustration. I'm going to contemporize it a little bit. He says, let's say that you have a classroom full of second grade boys, let's just say. You've got a bunch of eight-year-old boys, and you've got a, a teacher, a schoolmaster. He used the word schoolmaster. I like that word. I never get to use it, so I'll use the word schoolmaster. You've got a classroom of eight-year-old boys and a schoolmaster. And there's one particular boy in the class, let's just call him Tommy. And Tommy has a dad who's an alcoholic, and he gets drunk every night. In fact, he's drunk most of the time. And the schoolmaster in front of the entire class goes to Tommy and says, Tommy, is it true that your dad is a raging alcoholic? And he gets drunk every night. Is that true? Now, here's this eight-year-old boy in a tough position, and he wants to preserve the honor of his family and his dad. He doesn't, he's in a really tough spot. And so little eight-year-old Tommy tells a lie, and he says, no, not at all. My dad's a great man. He doesn't even touch alcohol. He's definitely not an alcoholic. Now, let me ask you a couple questions. Did Tommy lie? Absolutely, totally, 100% lie. Now, here's another question. You might just want to sit with this one for a moment. Is this sin? Now, you might be squirming here, but let's just back up. Is lying sin? Yes. So watch this. Tommy has told a lie, which is sin. But here's how Dietrich Bonhoeffer gets us out of this dilemma. Tommy has told a lie, which is sin. But Bonhoeffer says, it's a sin whose guilt falls completely on the schoolmaster. A sin has been committed here. But the weight of the sin falls on the schoolmaster because he has put this eight-year-old boy in an impossible situation. And this boy is just trying to preserve the honor of his family. He doesn't know what to do. So his best decision is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lie because I don't want to shame my family. And so Tommy lies, which becomes sin, but it's sin that, that falls completely on the guilt of, of, the, of the schoolmaster. This, I believe, is what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is saying in that type of culture, he's saying these women are being divorced for illegitimate reasons. This is an illegitimate breaking of the covenant. And it goes back to the issue we talked about last week, this issue of lust. What is lust? Lust is treating a human being as an object. For selfish desire. That's what these men in that culture were doing. They were treating their wives as an object for their own agenda. And when they no longer found her useful, they discarded her like a piece of garbage. And what Jesus is saying is, we're not going to do it that way. In this new kingdom society I'm ushering in, that's not the way we're going to treat one another. Listen, the Sermon on the Mount 
is not a comprehensive legal code. What the Sermon on the Mount does is it reveals to us the heart of God, out of which it begins to form our values. And those values that are formed from God's heart in the Sermon on the Mount enable and empower us to now make wise decisions as we live. Okay, I'm going I'm to make a statement about the Bible that at first you're, you're not going to agree with me, but if you'll give me two minutes, I will have persuaded you. The Bible does not contain all of the answers. I know that becomes a cliche. We talk like that. You know, the Bible has all the answers. Well, technically that's not true. If the Bible contained all of the answers, it would not fit in this room. It'd be too big. That's not the role of the Bible. That's not what the Bible is even trying to do. The role of the Bible, what the Bible does and what it wants to do is train us how to think. It wants to renew our minds so that we are able to think correctly and arrive at the right answer. Now, if you're still disagreeing with me, I'm going to persuade you right here. Let me give you an example. I could probably think of numerous examples. I'm going to give you what I think is a pretty clear one. The Bible does not give us an out-and-out condemnation of slavery. How many of you in this room are completely against slavery and you believe slavery is completely antithetical to what it means to follow Jesus? Raise your hands. All right, and there's a few that didn't raise your hands. Now, I want to have a conversation with you. All right. No, 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 we, we, all, we all understand that. We all understand that. But it's not because we have a chapter and verse that says explicitly, thou shalt not have slavery. It's not there. The Bible doesn't give that. In fact, what you have, let's just focus on the New Testament. What you have is when Paul actually touches on the issue of slavery, it, it, it's almost like there's this, this assumption, well, this is happening. We can't ignore it. It's, it's ingrained in our society right now. This is part of reality. It's part of the real world we're living in. And so we can't just pretend it's not there. So in light of the fact that it's right in front of us, let's talk about right now what's the holistic way to go forward. Let's talk about how we treat one another in the midst of it. So slaves, here's how I want you to relate to your masters. Masters, here's how I want you to relate to slaves. And yet, here we are today. How many of us here today would be willing to stand upon that and say, well, there you go. Uh, evidently, the Bible doesn't condemn slavery, so it must not be wrong as long as we're nice about it. None of us, every last person in this room and probably almost everybody in Burbank who's not even a Christian and they don't realize they've been formed by the, they've been formed by the ethics of Christ to some degree. We've gained a consciousness as a society because of the influence of Christ Every one of us would say, absolutely not. Slavery is inherently evil. And it is not congruent with what it means to belong to the kingdom of God. But you see, what's happened is the values of Christ that have flowed, flowed from the heart of God through the scriptures, through the Sermon on the Mount, through the New Testament, through all of the Bible, has led us on a trajectory. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, we've arrived at the correct conclusion that slavery is evil. So that's what the Bible does. It doesn't contain all of the answers. It trains us how to think. It renews our minds to think correctly so we can go forth making wise decisions that honor God. God I'll, I'll say it like this. God does not want to give you all the answers. 
I think that would undermine God's project. What is God up to? God wants us to be authentic beings who voluntarily choose to reflect his character in the world and make wise decisions that, that he would have us to make. No different than you as a parent. How many of you have children, grandchildren perhaps? You, you don't want to raise your children in such a way that they grow up to become adults and they have no capacity to make wise decisions. They have no capacity for sound judgment. And every single decision they make, they have to get on the phone and ask you what to do. Please dictate to me every decision. I, you don't want, that's exhausting for one thing. But also, they're not always going to have you around. You, you may get hit by a truck next week and be with Jesus. You want to be able to raise your children in such a way that they have gained the ability to exercise sound judgment and make wise, discerning decisions on their own. Amen. Somebody say amen. amen. And this is what God wants for us. God doesn't want to give you all the answers. God wants to renew your mind so that you're part of his family and you're carrying on the family business, making the same kinds of decisions that he would. And that's the role of scripture in our lives. Now, with the little bit of time remaining, I, I want to make a few, just like three comments on marriage. Because I, I looked at the topic for this weekend with Valentine's Day coming up. I was like, man, this is going to be a bummer. This is, this is not going to be a very thrilling message. So I, I want to close on, on some positive notes here. And I want to talk to you a little bit about marriage. And I think this is going to apply to you even if you're not married, Okay. Uh, there's going to be some things you can grab onto. But just, just some anecdotal observations from Ryan Post on the topic of marriage. The first one is this. Soulmates are not found. Soulmates are made. If you were to ask me, Ryan, is Carrie Post your soulmate? Absolutely. Totally. A thousand percent. But it's not because the two of us happen to find the right one out of billions of people. We've, we've found the person. It's, it's not that. It's because we've built a life together. And each of us have made the other one, if you want to use that language. We've made the other one our soulmate. See, I think one of the corrections that needs to be made, at least in some circles of evangelical Christianity... One of the corrections I think a lot of people need to make is we need to totally let go of this concept of destiny. It's become one of my least favorite words, destiny, in Christian circles. Destiny is a pagan concept, not a Christian idea. This idea that there's one person and there's one career and there's one place, one car I'm supposed to drive, and, and I gotta find it, I gotta find it. Uh, Lord, help me find the right it's, it puts, it, first of all, it puts way too much pressure on you, way too much stress. And this is not how life works. Generally speaking, this is not how it works. God's will is not so much something you find. It's a life that you live. The prophet Micah puts it like this. He says, I'll tell you what the will of God is. You want to know what the will of God is for your life? I'll tell you what it is. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly before your God. That's the will of God for your life. You want to know your destiny? I'll tell you what your, I'll, I'll prophesy and tell you your destiny right now. Your destiny is to do justice, love mercy, walk humbly before your God. And I'll tell you what, if you can learn with the Spirit's help 
through wise practices of prayer, which is why we're doing prayer school, if you can learn and walk on the trajectory of becoming the kind of person who acts justly, loves mercy, and walks humbly before your God, you will be in the will of God, no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, no matter who you're with. By that same token, all of the external circumstances of your life could be exactly right. You could be with the exact right person if such, if such a thing existed. You could be with the exact right person living in the exact right house in the exact right city in the exact right career and have everything on the external exactly the way God would have it to be. But if you're not becoming the right kind of person, then you're still not going to be in the will of God. The will of God's not something you find with a Ouija board. The will of God is a life that you live. It's a person you're becoming. And I think that takes a whole lot of pressure off of people. And, and I think younger people in particular, we've got to make that adjustment. Don't let somebody put that pressure on you. You've got to go out and find the one. They don't exist. Find someone who loves Jesus, who you're relationally compatible with, and make them the one. Amen? All right. I, I think some moms and dads might want to send this message to their kids. A couple more things and we're done. I'm going to make this statement. Give me a moment to put some boundaries around it. Because when I first make this statement, you might be squirming. Just give me a moment. I'm going to help you with this. But here's, what, here's the next thing. In general, when it comes to just general difficulties in marriage, your best chance at happiness is to stay together and work through the issues. Now, again, no condemnation on those who have been divorced. None at all. And also, I'm absolutely not talking about situations of abuse. That's a totally different situation. And I also understand it takes two people. You cannot work on a marriage by yourself. It's got to involve two people. But, but I'm just giving you, if you would just want to call them anecdotal observations from a pastor who's been at ministry now for nearly 20 years and been alive for 40 years. I'm just giving you some observations. And, and here's this next one. I'm just telling you, if the goal of your life is to be happy, and I'm, I think you ought to have a better goal than that. You should have a more loftier goal than just to be happy, but I'll just meet you where you are. If, you're, if the goal of your life is to be happy, then when it comes to the general difficulties that we encounter, everyone encounters in marriage, your best chance of happiness is to stay together and work through it. The grass is not greener on the other side. The grass is greenest where it's watered. Take what you have and invest in it. Amen? And then finally, last thing. Enjoy marriage by enjoying life together. That's the couples that have the healthiest most satisfying, God-honoring marriages that I've observed are couples who actually enjoy life together. They share life together, which is the whole reason. It's, it's the primary reason why we even get married. It's to, it's to spend our lives together. The primary purpose of marriage is not to procreate and have children. I mean, that's part of it, but that's not even the primary reason. Carrie and I have two wonderful children that we're so blessed to have. But just in a few short years, they're going to go to college, move out of the house. They're going to be grown. And you know what? Carrie and I are still going to be married. 
We're still going to do this thing. Why? Because the whole reason we got married was not to just simply procreate and have children, but to enjoy life together. So I'm not saying everybody has to pair up. Some people, God's called them into singlehood. He's called them into celibacy. And that's a holy calling. You're following in the footsteps of Jesus and Paul and several of the other apostles. So there's nothing wrong with that. But the majority of people are going to pair up. And when we pair up, we pair up for life. And the promise is we're going to do life together. So if we're going to have a good, healthy marriage, we need to learn how to enjoy life and marriage together. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.